Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 13, The 50 Years Peace. So where we last left off, the Persian War was still going strong. And uh, the last major defeat had the Persians on the run. And the Greeks, they, they pursued them and they chased them. And there was a final battle where they got kicked out of mainland Greece. But now, now the Persians still occupy a lot of Greek Ionian cities in the Aegean Sea and Anatolia. And they were pursued by the Greeks. But at a certain point, the after freeing enough people, the Spartans decided, you know, this war wasn't enough or this war was over, and they had no reason to pursue the Persians anymore, and they they wanted to return back home, and even now, and and many other Greeks wanted to return home. This was to them the end of the war. They defeated the Persians, but but according to the Athenians, the war was not over, and they had a lot of good reasons to believe this because the last time the Persians came, they were defeated, and then they regrouped, and then they came back with a bigger and stronger army, and there was no reason. To think that this wasn't going to happen again. The only thing is, is there were a lot of armies who wanted to go back to their city-states because they were farmers as well. And yet Athens, they had no city to return to. Their capital city was burned to the ground. And most of the cities, the Greek cities that were still occupied by the Persians, these were Ionian Greek cities. So they were the Athenian countrymen. This was their tribe. They were still occupied. So they, they really wanted to pursue this war. They wanted to keep it going. This led to the formation of the Delian League. Since it was the Athenian navy that defeated Xerxes, they asserted themselves as the head of the league and collected a small tax from every Greek state within the alliance to rebuild the navy and make it stronger than ever. This made perfect sense to everyone at the time, as they were still rebuilding the cities that were sacked by Xerxes and his army. The city of Athens had to be completely rebuilt, and they used a lot of money from this tax to fund the new construction. So while we're on the topic of the Delian League, I thought I'd ask um, what was around before the Delian League and how, how were the Greeks organized? Uh, before that was uh, called the Greek League, I believe. Uh, it was kind of like a loose uh, affiliation of all the cities. They would they agreed to defend each other, stick up for each other, uh, come to the rescue of each other. But each person had to pay their own way, so there was like no tax collected. But a, a, a curiosity thing about it was that... Uh, um, if you elected to not take part, there was nothing held against it. Like, you, you could just say, yeah, I'm not part of this, this deal right now, so I'm going to go home. And um, it was not held against you. And um, we understand this goes way back to the Trojan War era. So it's, it'd been around for a long time. It was uh, not a new thing. And uh, one thing to note, too, is when the Delian League was formed, it didn't destroy the Greek League. It was just sort of an additional agreement written at the time. There was no dissolution of the Greek League. With the Delian League in operation for several years now, without a single invasion from the Persians, they grew very strong and dominated the Aegean Sea. Athens, at the head of the League, became more rich and powerful than any Greek city-state had ever thought possible. The Delian League quickly started to resemble an empire, and with no Persian invasion, many started to question the need for the Delian League 
For a while, there was a shaky relationship between the ever-powerful Athens and the smaller city-states. And when the first city-states decided to pull out of the Delian League, Athens crushed them, destroying the fortifications of the rebellious Greek cities, leaving them completely defenseless. This made it apparent to everyone that Athens was in control and everyone else was a vassal state. So, absolute power corrupts absolutely, I guess. The head of the Athenian Empire was Pericles, and he made a lot of decisions that shaped the empire as we know it. He was the one who centralized the treasury in the Parthenon on top of Athens. Pericles took money from the treasury and used it to build Athens with public buildings and infrastructure. This was the period where most of the Greek sculptures were commissioned. This was the Athenian Golden Age. The major sources for this period are the writings of Thucydides, who was a very reliable source, but didn't write too much about this period. He mostly focused on the Peloponnesian War and referenced this period as the lead-up to war. Then there is Plutarch who wrote about this period with more detail and exact dates as well as other historical sources, most of which did not survive. The only problem with Plutarch is that he wrote it hundreds of years later. So in the beginning, before the alliance against the Persians dissolved, the Athenians felt it was their duty to liberate all of the Ionian city-states still paying tribute to Xerxes. So the Greeks went on campaign up and down the coast of Anatolia, destroying every last Persian ship they could find and sending their hoplites into the land, forcing every last Persian out of the city-states. Many Persian soldiers were slaughtered during these campaigns. It was a final, I guess, eradication of any remnant Persian forces still in the area. Okay, now to get into some official dates here. Um, by the year 478 BC, all of the Ionian polises were free, and this includes Byzantium. Now, the newly freed Ionian states asked the Athenians to lead an alliance to keep them free and to prevent any future invasions from Xerxes. They're always the first ones to get hit, by the way, being on the coast of Anatolia. And the Athenians, of course, accepted the responsibility. By this time, the original alliance between Sparta and Athens and the other Greek polises had dissolved, and every one of them returned home. When Sparta decided not to get involved in the Ionian states, it was after one of their leaders had been recalled for falling into corruption after experiencing the Persian indulgences left behind. When the Spartans saw how corrupted their leader Pomaeus became when he returned to Sparta, they decided to keep to their own and not get involved. Had the Spartans remained in Ionia, they probably would have been the ones asked to lead the new alliance, but with Sparta out of the equation, the only ones left was Athens. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about this Spartan general who got corrupted. He he fought in the Persian Wars, and he, and he was involved in the liberation of some of these early Ionian cities, but when he went up to Byzantium, and participated in the liberation, he kind of got involved with a lot of the alcohol, the food, the riches, and, and he was known or quoted to be a real jerk to all the other Greeks. And he got he got full-on corrupted by wealth and greed. So when he came back to Sparta, he was he was considered to be tainted by the, the riches of the Persian by the Persian Empire. And they ended up arresting him and charging him and they were so sickened by his corruption they they actually executed him. And this was one of those reasons why this the Spartans decided, you know what, we're not gonna get involved in your foreign affairs. We're gonna go back to the Peloponnese 
We're going to go back to our traditional way of life, and you guys can go take care of the rest of this stuff. We're out. In 477 BCE, the Delian League was formed. That put Athens in charge with control of the navy and instituted a tax on all other Delian League members to finance this navy. In the beginning, almost everyone living on the coast or on an island volunteered to join. They were terrified of the Persians and were practically begging for Athens to protect them. The Ionians and the Athenians share a common background, as they all shared a common ancestor city and Greek dialect. They all considered the island Delos in the middle of the sea to be a holy place, so they decided it would be the best place to hold the treasury, which would fund the Delian League. There was a ceremony when they initiated the league where the Greeks threw a large chunk of iron into the sea and swore that they would fight together until that iron floated to the top. So the taxes were levied fairly against each city-state, and this was based off their size and GDP and military capacity. They originally set out just to collect enough silver to build 400 warships and pay enough oarsmen to row them. And this was an agreed-upon amount of all the Delian League members at the time. And this means that, almost from its inception, the Delian League was the most rich and powerful naval force in the region. They spent their time hunting down Persians and liberating Greek cities. And eventually, they started to move out of the classical Ionian territory and started to spread east along the southern coast of Anatolia. Okay, so at this point, I want to talk a little bit about who is running the Athenian Empire at this point. Even though it isn't fully an empire, we've got to look at the man who's running the show. And this is someone named Themistocles. Now, he was a hero at the Battle of Marathon, which was the very first invasion of the Persians in 490 BCE. And he was a different type of leader, too. He didn't come from an aristocratic background. He is one of those politicians who rose through democracy, through meritocracy. It was his own merits that got him in the power and position that he was in now. The people liked him, and he knew how to make a city great. And when the war was over, this man was a hero. They idolized him. And he got... Um, oh, throughout his career, he started to make a few enemies because of his arrogancy be got the better of him. And one of the peoples who really, it really started to take offense to his arrogancy was Sparta. There was a... A story we saw about an Olympic Games where everyone was enjoying the games until Themistocles showed up. And then as soon as he was in, in the stadium at the games, everyone stopped watching the athletes and they all started watching Themistocles. It goes to show the kind of rock star power this man had. And it was through his brilliance where they started to reorganize the... The defense system, no longer were they going to focus on hoplites, which, you know, they were the best in the land. They knew the Persians, if they came back, they were going to come back with a navy and they needed to be ready. So it was his idea to really sponsor the construction of all these trireme ships, which led to the largest fleet the Aegean Sea had ever seen. One of the, one of the things that uh, he did to upset the uh, Spartans was... He uh, initiated the building of the walls of Athens, a large fortification. That was kind of like a no-no at the time because now this made Sparta 
like uh, very nervous and because uh, they said, well, you know, if the Persians come back in and they take you, now they have a huge fortress that they can hide behind. Uh, we don't like you building this. So there was a big difference of opinion going on there. So now um, all these things happening and his arrogance taking over, uh, people were starting to get kind of, uh, well, they didn't really care for him anymore. And it got to the point where he was actually ostracized. He was uh, removed and uh, he ended up uh, spending the rest of his life in exile in Argos. And the ostracizing took place in 472 BC. With Themistocles now ostracized, a new leader had to be elected and take over. And the Athenians chose someone named Cimon. Now Cimon was also a, a hero from the Persian Wars. But he, he was a little different than Themistocles. He wasn't as arrogant, and he actually had a very strong relationship with the Spartans. Now, his whole goal was just the betterment and the protection of the Greek people. So he didn't offend the Spartans like his predecessor did. Now, because Cimon had a strong relationship with the Spartans, it, it allowed the Athenian Empire to get away with what it did for so long. Strictly because Cimon was always able to calm down the Spartans whenever they got worried that Athens was gaining so much power and control over the Greek world. In 466 BC, the Delian League met the Persian army in battle again. This time at the mouth of the Eurymedian River. The Delian League rode onto the scene and encountered the Persian fleet, who were waiting for 80 Phoenician ships to arrive on the scene. The Greeks quickly engaged the Persians in battle and crushed several of their ships and their boarding parties killed everyone on board. The rest of the Persian ships saw their front rank get destroyed and they turned and ran. They fled upriver and then beached all of their boats forming up for battle on the riverbank. The Greek hoplites proved superior once again and crushed the Persian army forcing the rest to retreat back to their camp. The Greeks pursued and captured the entire camp and army. Thucydides says that the battle ended here, but according to Plutarch, the Delian League set sail for the 80 Phoenician ships and destroyed them as well. The Greeks could have pressed their advantage and pursued further into Persian territory, but they didn't. This is also the moment the Greeks realize it will be a while before the Persians ever come back. In 465 BC, Athens founded a new colony on the Strymon River called Amphipolis. Now this new colony was in direct competition for Thassos. They had an interest in the mines of Mount Pangaion, and Thassos was angered by the move by Athens and attempted to secede from the Delian League. You see, up until now the agreement they signed in 477 BCE was purely voluntary, much like the Greek League that existed for centuries before that. And in theory, they should be able to leave whenever they want. But this is the turning point for the Delian League, where they come from a group of volunteers, and it becomes very apparent that now Athens is in control, and everyone else has to kind of do what they say. To paint a picture here, Thassos is at the north end of the Aegean Sea. And their entire trade was based off of this mine. So when Athens came in and set up their own tiny little colony between Thassos and the mine, they were, they were cutting off Thassos from their livelihood. So this was a very bold, aggressive move. And it was clear this was to 
seize control of assets that they technically didn't have rights to. So in 464 BCE, the Athenians sent their forces into Thassos to crush the rebellion. Now during this time, Thassos called for help from the Spartans to uh, aid against the Athenians, but their, their request was denied. The Athenians tore down the walls, destroyed or confiscated all of their ships, all of their interests in the mines were seized, and this was a defining moment for the League. See, the, De- the Delian League at this point officially becomes the Athenian Empire, and everyone knew it at the time. Now, Cimon is the leader of the Delian League, and he's playing a very dangerous political game at this time. You see, tensions were starting to mount within Athens, but also with all the surrounding neighbors, specifically Sparta. Everyone now could clearly see the threat that Athens had become. And measures were taken to counter the Delian League. For sure, the Spartans were upset that they turned down the opportunity to lead the Delian League in the first place. But it was too late now. The Athenians had control. And Sparta needed to do something to counter this political behemoth that Athens was becoming in the Hellenic world. The only reason Sparta did not take action immediately was because of the good relationship that they had with Cimon. He was a faithful aristocrat who believed in the cooperation between Sparta and Athens. And he was a little more trusted to the Spartans because of his aristocratic background, as opposed to Themistocles, who was a, a true democrat who didn't have those aristocratic ties. So there was a little bit of trust between the leader of Athens and Sparta, but definitely not the machine of Athens and Sparta. Because technically Athens is still a democracy, which means other political parties are starting to gain traction. And, and there's a very specific man in Athens who is starting to become powerful and noticed by the populace. And his name is Ephialtes. And his protege is going to become a very important figure in Greek history. And his name is Pericles. And we're going to get into their story very soon. In 464 BC, an earthquake devastated Sparta, killing tens of thousands of people. Everything was made of stone and people were crushed below rock. Unfortunately for the Spartan warriors, their barracks were also made of stone. And while they were sleeping, they were crushed. The earthquake devastated the Spartan military. Now, this is the same year as when Thassos asked for help. And uh, they didn't get it from Sparta. Hmm, quite a coincidence. Seizing their moment, the helots rise up and revolt against the Spartans. They had been treated terribly for centuries, used as slaves and murdered for fun, and even used for practice when teaching their children how to kill. The Helots hated the Spartans and were just waiting for the right moment to rise up. The Helots were once a noble Greek people belonging to the Mycenae. This is in fact the beginning of the Third Mycenaean War. The Helots took a position on Mount Ithom where they knew the Spartans could not follow and they held out defiantly in their defensive position for years. It is at this point that the king of Sparta sends a messenger to Athens requesting aid based off of the Hellenic treaty signed in 480 BC. The radical democrats in Athens, Ephialtes and Pericles, laugh at the request sent by Sparta. Uh, Could be because Sparta is really weak now. 
The radical Democrats hate Sparta and everything Spartan. They look at them as regressive and repugnant. However, Chimon is a wiser and more honorable leader, and he convinces the League that they must respond to Sparta's request for help. This is a powerful moment and shows how good leadership can pull armies away from the brink of war. Chimon personally leads 4,000 Athenian hoplites into the Peloponnese to help stabilize the Spartan military situation. Unfortunately, Chimon taking all these soldiers away from the capital left a big opportunity for Ephialtes and Pericles, the leaders of the Radical Democrats, to make some changes on the political stage. Even though Chimon was responding in good faith to the Spartans, they couldn't trust the 4,000 Athenian hoplites marching into their territory. They were afraid the Athenians would side with the Helots and completely annex Sparta. So they sent the Athenians packing, basically slapping Cimon in the face. This made Cimon look weak in the eyes of Athens, but it also nulled the Spartan-Athenian agreement of 480 BC. So I also, I want to stress the point of Cimon marching his troops into the Peloponnese and how this was... A good leader really trying hard to hold on to alliances and keeping the region stable. See, he survived the Persian Wars. He fought in the Persian Wars. The Spartans, they were fighting in the wars. And and they, they, just, they just want to maintain that stability. And then all these other people who were born, either they were children during the Persian Wars or they were born after... They don't know why it's so important to hold on to stability and why Athens and Sparta need to get along. Because they don't realize how powerful this Persian Empire really is. Like, they're not even trying to invade Greece anymore. But if they did, if the Persians decided we're going to invade Greece, it would be a million-man army. Well, yeah, we know now it wouldn't be a million-man army, but it would be a big army. It would be bigger than anything Greece could put together. But the kids don't know that. Pericles doesn't know that. Ephialtes doesn't know that. Chimon knows that. The Spartan kings know that. And that's why it was very important for them to hold on to peace. But as time goes on and new people take control, things break down. And when things break down, well, that's that's going to get into our next episode. And so... Also, Chimon got turned back by the Spartans, even though they were asked to come and help them. So you can see it's working both ways. Everybody's starting to distrust everybody. In 462 BCE, the Radical Democrats passed laws that stripped the power away from the Archon office and gave it to the Radical Democrats. Now, this led to a series of violent responses, including the ostracism of Chimon as well as the assassination of Ephialtes. With Ephialtes gone, Pericles rose to power as the leader of the radical Democrats. And while the chaos in the Athenian government took place, Sparta watched and waited for an opportunity to strike. Now in 461 BCE, Pericles made alliances with Argos and Thessaly, moving them very close, like physically, into Sparta itself. Now this triggered 
what is commonly known as the First Peloponnesian War, which lasted from 461 to 445 BCE. So as you can see, you know, some chaos happened in the capital city of Athens. A couple political parties got out of control. Riots happened. They murdered the leaders of both democratic parties. And Cimon, being the only man who was holding the bond between Sparta and Athens, now gone, immediately after war breaks out between Sparta and Athens. So, we're, we're slipping out of our 50-year peace. And now that I think about it, our, our the title of this episode is called The 50-Year Peace. And right in the middle of this 50-year peace, a war breaks out. So, not so peaceful. <laughs> We've mentioned this name before, Thucydides, the, the guy who uh, has written the accounts of the Peloponnesian War. Well, it's important to, to, to say when he was born. He was actually born in 460 BC. So keep that in mind, uh, because that means he had to have written these, these accounts, say, 25 to 30 years after they happened, because he's, he's just a newborn baby when this is going on. In 460 BC, the Delian League had ships landing in Egypt. It was under the rule of the Persian Empire. But this time when they landed, they were in revolt. The captains of the Delian ships thought this was the perfect opportunity to annex parts of Egypt from the Persian Empire, even though this meant splitting his army in two. At first, the Greeks took control of some territory. But very quickly, the Persian Empire responded. In 458 BC, Pericles is elected to the Board of Generals. And because of his strategy of appealing to the lowest classes of citizens, the, the Thetes, oarsmen on warships, he consistently won elections for nearly 20 years straight. Pretty quick, the unity of the oarsmen became a huge political influence in Athens. Pericles really worked for the people and made sure the taxes collected from the Delian League members, they were going to pay the oarsmen a fair wage, for they had a very tough job and supported the entire Athenian Empire. Pericles commissioned the building of many public structures in order to employ the poor Athenians. Pericles also subsidized grain from Egypt to make sure everyone had food on the table. It was no surprise that Pericles was as popular and elected consistently for so many years. The Thetes were now able to serve on juries and in political offices and draw salaries for the service. This was revolutionary and equal rights in the Athenian democracy. So we're about to get to a turning point in the Athenian Empire or the Delian League. I think the first turning point was the time when Athens invaded Thassos to crush rebellion after they tried to leave when their gold mine was taken away. This is definitely a second turning point. In 454 BCE, the Persian forces swooped into Egypt and they even captured and destroyed over 100 Greek warships. Now, this was a stunning defeat on behalf of the Delian League and quite embarrassing for the Athenians. Pericles feared that this would cause the members of the League to revolt, so through his fear, he moved the treasury off of the island of Delos and placed it in Athens. Now, this centralized and consolidated 
all of the power of the Delian League into the hands of Athens. And uh, the Parthenon, which is a very famous structure from the classic period, was actually built to house all the treasures of the Delian League. Now that Pericles had the treasury in Athens, he commissioned even more public building projects just to make the city as grand of a city as any city in the known world, rivaling any of the cities in the Persian Empire. And all of these public construction projects employed citizens guaranteeing their vote for Pericles again. So, I mean, this is just a continuation of him consolidating power. And even though, like, the other Greek cities were probably pissed off that their money was taken out of their uh, collective bank and put into Athens, the people living in Athens at the time saw marble statues and wonderful temples. And whenever we think of ancient Greece... Probably not us, but whenever like the general public thinks of ancient Greece, this is the time period they're thinking of, the golden age of Athens. Now in 449 BCE, Pericles negotiated a peace treaty between the Delian League and the Persian Empire. And this officially ended hostilities between two old ancient enemies. This was known as the Peace of Kalia. And it also meant that Persia would never, ever invade the Ionian cities again. Now he tried to summon an assembly of all Greeks to discuss the criticism of the Delian League's need to exist because now that there was peace between the Persians and the Greeks, what's the point in a Delian League? Considering the Delian League's mission statement is to defend against the attack of Persians, but because no one showed up outside of the Delian League, they voted to stay. So if you're going to have a vote to dis to disassemble uh a group and no one outside of the group shows up the group is probably going to stand but um there is one thing i want to note because it says in the year 449 pericles negotiated a peace treaty but it didn't happen in 449 it took years for this negotiation to go through so even though it started in 449 the actual peace was signed several years later in 447 BC, Pericles builds the giant old era-sized walls around the city of Athens. As Athens was several miles inland, Pericles decided to build an eight-mile wall across farmland and surrounding the main port Piraeus. Now there was a secure port for Athens to constantly resupply the capital city in case the Spartans ever decide to lay siege to the city. It is obviously now to Pericles that Persia is completely out of the picture and Sparta is the main threat to their existence. In 446 BC, Pericles and the Spartan king Pleistoanax negotiated the 30 years peace. This is supposed to be the great peace period, but we all know it won't last long. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> So although this period was a lead-up to a disastrous war, a life for most Greeks went on, and people lived prosperous lives. Many Greek playwrights came to fame during this period, and this is where Greek tragedies became very popular. Now, the Greek plays were a part of your duty to the city, and everyone saw them. All of the, th all of the free men were expected to attend these plays. 
Now, these performances were very important simply because at any given time, there could be up to 17,000 Greeks in the theater watching these plays. And this was where political messages were made. The plays addressed serious issues such as morality and letting greed take over or anger getting the best of you. And it always talks about duty and honor. These plays, they weren't just propaganda tools. This was a way of therapy. It taught the citizens how to deal with troubling times and how to maintain their dignity and honor. This was the only way for messages to be communicated. It was the very structure of their society. You know, in today's time, we we think of plays as just fun, entertainment, ways to pass the time, but they had a whole deeper meaning back in ancient Greece. This was... This was how you built your society. This was how you built your moral structure. Sophocles was born in 497 BCE and died in 406 BC, making him about 90, 91 years old. He was a 17-year-old boy during the Persian invasions. He saw the expansion of the Delian League and the booming success of Athens. The last 25 years of his life, he watched everything turn to hell. The war between Athens and Sparta destroyed everything. This can all be seen in the plays he wrote while he was alive, and he is one of the best-known playwrights of that century. He went on to write the famous Oedipus Rex, where an oracle gave a prophecy that the young prince would grow up to kill his father and marry his mother. This is the play where they abandon their baby in the wild, where it will die of exposure, but instead the baby is adopted by herders and eventually comes back to town and murders the king and marries the queen, only to realize the prophecy came true. It's a much more in-depth story than just that, and if you would really like to hear more about that story, then I recommend a podcast, Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. Thucydides is the most famous historian from this period. And just like Herodotus, who covered the Persian Wars before him, Thucydides covers the horrors. And he's a pessimist. Because he lived through the most horrific war the Greeks had ever fought in. He was born in the height of Athenian democracy, which was the golden age of Greece. But he was also alive during the reign of the radical Democrats. And he became highly skeptical of Athenian democracy. See, he feared the system allowed for demagogues to gain control. However, Thucydides had a strong regard for Pericles, as he was strong enough to keep the people in check, as well as control the foreign affairs with a cool head, but also prevent personal gain from getting in the way of governing over the empire. So, Thucydides feared the system, But he also acknowledged the fact that there was a strong man in charge who could keep everything in control. But what happens when that strong man goes away? Now Thucydides knew that the coming war would be fatal and wipe out both city-states. Sparta had all of their food farmed by the helot slaves and could keep their infantry in battle all year round. The Athenians had the Long Wall and this allowed them to remain safe in their city as well as get continuously resupplied by the Athenian League. 
So not to so there's not only the fact that Sparta had the most feared infantry in the entire world, but Athens had the most powerful navy in the entire world. So all the people living in this time, most of them saw that there was a war coming. They could just see it. And only a few people were holding peace in place. It was very fragile. And there were a few people who did everything in their power to maintain this peace. But unfortunately, they couldn't hold it together forever. And when the system collapsed, the golden civilization that Athens had evolved into was about to get stripped down to the brutal, barbaric, animalistic tendencies that humans tend to have when they face great suffering. In 436 BC, in a remote region in northern Greece, further north than Macedonia, a class war broke out in the city of Epidamnus. The Democrats in this Greek colony, practically in modern-day Croatia, sent a messenger to their mother Polis, Corsera, for aid. And uh, Corsera was a member of the Delian League, and but they refused to help the Democrats take back their place in the city. With no other choice but to go home, the messenger from Epidamnus went to Corinth, who was part of the Peloponnesian League. The Corinthians agreed to help the Democrats get back into power in their faraway city, and when they sent ships full of supplies and reinforcements, the Corsera navy intercepted them, capturing or destroying their vessels. This angered the Corinthians, and they began to muster a large fleet to crush the Corsera city-state. In a panic, Corsera reaches out to Athens for help. They plead to Athens with this message. Athens is the largest navy in all of Greece. Corinth is the second, and Corsaira is the third. If Athens allows for Corinth to take the Corsaira navy as their own, then they will be the largest navy in the Greek world, and Athens will be the second. This quote is the message sent to Athens, which ultimately is the trigger which leads the Greek world into the biggest I would call it a civil war, but I don't even know if you would call it a civil war because they were separate states. But this is the biggest war the Greek world had ever known. Bigger than the, the Persian War. And as we were talking before, this destroyed everything that the Golden Age had built. It's uh, very reminiscent of the events that led up to World War I, where you had all these powerful nations. And they were all loosely held together by some treaties, but they were all greedy and at each other's throats. And all it took was one little skirmish on the outskirts of the nations to pull everyone into one of the deadliest wars anyone had ever seen before. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.